Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. We thank you for your grace and mercy that is new every morning. Lord, I pray for your, your strength in delivering your word. I pray that your spirit would move on the other side of the delivery of the word to bring it into our hearts this morning. Have your way with the word, Lord God. Use it to pierce our hearts. Use it to humble our pride. Use it to reform and reshape us, O Father, into the image of your Son, in whose name we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you please open up the Word of God, the Holy Scripture, and find your way into the book of Acts. Find your way, in fact, into the book of Acts to the very first chapter of the book of Acts. The title of my sermon this morning is Taken Up in Glory. Taken Up in Glory. This title comes from a line in the Apostle Paul's letter to Timothy, and what we refer to as 1 Timothy. And wh while you're turning to Acts, just listen to this line from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, in which the title of today's sermon, Taken Up in Glory, is found. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we read this. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who has been revealed in the flesh was vindicated of the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now today I want to talk to you about that phrase right there, taken up in glory. I want to talk to you about this historic event that culminated in Jesus' physical earthly ministry that, be, that, that we refer to as the very beginning of what's called the doctrine of exaltation. The very beginning of his exaltation, it, 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 starts, it, it starts to come in with his resurrection. And then as we see the Christ ascended into heaven, this is what we call exaltation. The risen one, the ascended one. Today's message will take us into prophecy, to history, to systematic theology. As we explore the glorious taking up of the historic and prophesied Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the nations... I want to begin by taking us into the book of Acts to see the accounting of this event from the ancient historian Luke. In a moment, we're going to read from the pen of Luke. You know, it's, it's fitting that we talk about the taking up of glory, that we talk about the doctrine of exaltation, that we talk about resurrection and, and ascension today. It's fitting that we talk about it today because today is actually Ascension Sunday. It is the, the Lord's Day on the Western Christian calendar in which believers commemorate and celebrate the historic day when Jesus ascended from the earth into the heavens. So let's, let's, with that said, let's read the account in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The first account that I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave for Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? 
And he said to them, It is not for you to know the epochs or the times which the Father has fixed by his authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up, ascension, while they were looking on, and a cloud received, received him out of their sight. I'm so, I'm so happy that we're able to talk about Ascension today on Ascension Sunday, and I'm so happy that of all places we're able to be outside and have these clouds and think about what that was like for those disciples. We today is the continuous, uh, 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 as the continuation of the disciples, and to think and to look up and to think, he was ascended into the clouds. When Jesus was arrested, his disciples, they, they scattered out of fear. Save for John and Jesus' mother, Jesus died without his beloved disciples by his side. Immediately after rising from the dead, the master shepherd went to his scattered sheep and one by one, one by one, he gathered them. Over a period of 40 days, he, he poured into them, teaching them, loving them, enjoying them. And then one day he took them on a trip to the mountains. It was reminiscent of a time that he had led them into the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus' glory was, was slightly unveiled and where the, heaven was, the heavens were slightly pulled back and, 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 and they saw the prophet Eliyahu. We refer to in English as Elijah. They saw Eliyahu and they saw Moshe, who we refer to as Moses. The heavens were pulled back and they saw Moshe and Eliyahu and there Yeshua, Jesus, also pulled back and his glory starts to come through on that mountain, on that trip. And they got a glimpse of what was going on, transfiguration of the glory that was in the incarnate one. Look at that transfiguration. Now this time there won't be transfiguration for he is already glorified. This time it won't be transfiguration. This time, this trip to the mountains that he's taking them on is going to culminate in translation. He will be lifted up in glory. And from on that mountain, Jesus enters into the heavens. The disciples then are left standing on sacred ground, the very place in the physical universe where Jesus would, would, would touch before he left to the earth. It was the last, the last physical thing that he touched. That ground, the last physical thing in the creation that he touched as his physical body was lifted up into the heavens. It is worth noting that since... The early church believers have gathered around a small cave on the Mount of Olives to, to celebrate that historic location and that historic moment. Centuries after, those early days, centuries after, when, when persecution began to lift, particularly around the Edict of Milan, believers moved from that cave into a more open area on the mountain and they built a church there and they would worship God there. This was the last place that he touched and they'd go and they would worship God there. Subsequently in history, through the violence of the Crusades and ancient uh, Muslim terrorism, that church was torn down and believers uh, fought over that location. And that's a, a very interesting history, but archaeologists to this day are unearthing things with regard to this location. They've studied the place, they've, they've studied the church bodies. In fact, today the Russian Orthodox Church has a convent on top of the Mount of Olives. What a special place to go. In fact, some of you have gone with me to the land, and we've been at that location, and it's 
such a special place to be there and say, this is where it happened. This is where he left. This is where he departed. What a special place that is. It makes me think of, of times when I was a kid and my dad would take us on family trips. In particular, when I was a little boy and my dad took us on a family trip out of state to show us his his hometown and where he grew up and we're in the car and he's driving around and you know over here is where this happened and over here is where this happened and over here is where this happened and as a little kid with my dad going wow you know that's that's cool that like that happened right there I've heard you talk about that and it happened right there I do that with my kids uh, because I've I've grown up in this town and so sometimes we'll be driving around and I might say oh here's where that happened or here's Here's where that happened, and we drive around the town, and, and we've lived, we've moved a handful of times, so you know, you might say, oh, we used to live there when you were a little baby, oh, right there, oh, yeah, yeah, you used to live there, and over here's where, you know, your grandpa used to live, and whatever, and, and you drive around, and you go, hey, that's a special place. Jesus, Jesus takes the disciples, and he says, he says, come with me, we're going to go on a mountain trip. And then he leaves, and that place becomes this sacred ground. And then those disciples, they go and they make disciples, and they take their disciples in, in, in the car, if you will, and they say, I, I want to show you guys something. Here's the place where it happened. Here's where we were commissioned. Here's, here's where he last was in the physical creation of, of, of this space and this time. Here's, here's where it went down. This is where he was taken up in glory. And the importance of this event was huge to those disciples and those early believers. And it ought to be huge for us today. Its significance is reflected in the New Testament writings as well as the ancient creeds of the church. As we saw in the beginning of T Timothy, this is our confession, Paul writes to Timothy. And it includes his taking up in glory. And that confession passes on into the ancient creeds of the church. For example, we read in the, Apostle, the Apostles' Creed, loud and clearly, we read in the Apostles' Creed, He ascended into heaven, quote-unquote. He ascended into heaven is right in between the phrase, He rose from the dead, and the phrase, He sitteth at the right hand of God. He's ascended. The ancient creeds cry out. The scriptures cry out. He's ascended. And those creeds and, and the ancient scripture cries out. And that moves, if you're, we're surveying church history, all the way up to the Reformation, to the great confessions of the Reformation. I think of the Heidelberg Catechism, which, which, which we continue catechism today. It moves from the ancient days up to Reformation, up to us today in our contemporary catechisms, in our church. Question 49. Where is Christ now? That's our catechism. Where is Christ now? And the answer is Christ rose bodily from the grave on the third day after his death, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Question 51 goes on and it unpacks this, this question, question 51, what advantage to us is Christ's ascension? What's the point of it? And in today's message, that's what I want to do. I want to unpack it. If you are able to get the outline, I'll give you an alliteration and try to unpack some of, the, some, some, some of the key things of this. We're just going to be surveying because there's a lot going on in the doctrine of ascension. We're living in a very interesting time, and so I'm, I'm excited, too, that, that in a time like this and being outside, we can reflect and think about ascension, being outside because of this COVID-19 moment that we're in. And in the COVID-19 moment, we have all these conversations about what is essential. Of course, we don't just have conversations, do we? We have debates, too, you know. And, and let me say this, that the doctrine of ascension isn't essential. 
and there is no debate about it. It's essential. It's central. There's no debate about that. It culminates Christ's work for his people and much more, as we will explore in today's message. It, it's, it's just central. It's essential to our faith. When it comes to the essentials of our faith, we make it a point to rehearse them in our, in our worship. If you're a part of Delray Church, you know that, that we, we rehearse the essentials when we gather in worship, particularly on Sundays. When it comes to the teaching of God's word, you, you know that about us. You, you know that about me as a pastor in this church. When I teach the scripture, I'm going to tell you about the triunity of God. I'm going to tell you about the holiness of God and the righteousness of God. I'm going to tell you about the fall of man and the wages of sin and the incarnation of the, of the eternal son and his righteous life, his vicarious death, his victorious resurrection. No triune God, no sin, no wrath, no mercy, no incarnation, no cross, no resurrection, no grace, no Christianity. You don't bring that up in your sermon, it's not a Christian sermon. These are essential, these are fundamental, these are central as well. The ascension of Jesus is fundamental to our proclamation. The return of Jesus is fundamental to our proclamation and our celebration as we worship. We worship the risen, ascended, and returning one. Now, while the details of his return, that might be something that is debated, like aspects of COVID can be debated among thoughtful people, that might be something that's debated, some of the details of his return and how that pans out. But his return is not debated. His ascension is not debated. Those are essentials for our identity as believers and worshipers of the triune God. It's essential. He, he could not come back if he did not go. And so the essentiality of the return of Christ is prefaced by the essentiality of the ascension of Christ. This historic moment on that mountain when his physical body left the physical creation and it all begins with this first point on your outline, prophecy. What was unfolding was a matter of prophecy. And if you have the outline printed up or if you just pull it up on the website and you look, I have a parenthesis and I have a, 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 a bunch of Bible verses there for you to see. A bunch of biblical references with regard to this, this ascension. It was prophesied. The New Testament references are all made by Jesus the Messiah, himself a prophet. When you look at, at the outline and the samples that you see there, these are prophecies that are made by the Messiah, Jesus. He prophesies his own ascension. He speaks of going to the Father. He spoke of ascending into heaven. Before him in the Hebrew Bible, the same language that Jesus uses of a messianic figure who's ascending, it can be found in the book of Psalms. In particular, uh, to those Psalms are what's known as the Royal Psalms. If you're taking notes, write down Royal Psalms. These are a, a genre or a category among all of the Psalms that we have in the Hebrew Bible. The, the Royal Psalms are these ancient court liturgies that, that involve the voice of a king figure among the people of Israel and, 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 and with the themes of the covenants of God, especially the covenant to Abraham and the covenant to David. According to noted New T uh, Old Testament scholar Dr. Walter Kaiser, and I quote, the royal psalms are steeped in the ideology of the Davidic dynasty and presuppose the promise and the oath that was made to him. They formed a unity centering on the Davidic king who as Yahweh's son resided in Zion, the chosen city, ruled over Yahweh's people and was heir to the promise, end quote. 
Now on your outline, you have a list of the royal, the royal Psalms. At the front of the list is Psalm 110, which is what we began our reading of Scripture today with. Psalm 110 is one of the most, if not the most, quoted or alluded to passages in the Hebrew Bible that we find inside of the Jewish New Testament. This passage is very important, Psalm 110. And so we began our, our, our worship today with it. It contains uh, images that are tied to the essentials of our faith. Psalm 110 begins, let me remind you of what we read in our, in our worship uh, here today. It begins, Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This passage is attributed to the ancient King David. The king speaks of his Lord, who is spoken to by the Lord. In the original language, in the Hebrew text, the Lord, Yahweh in Hebrew, Yahweh says to the Lord, Adonai. And he, Yahweh, God, wants him, Adonai, David's God, to come up and sit with him. Now, Jesus, the historical Jesus of Nazareth, himself used this passage, and he used it to stump his interlocutors. If you're taking notes, write down Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46, and you see where Jesus uses this royal psalm, Psalm 110. Now, mind you, Jesus is a descendant of David. Hence, he is of the pedigree of the king. In Matthew 22, Jesus hits the haters with a million-dollar question. If David calls him Lord, Jesus asks, how is he his son, Jesus asks. The answer was staring them in the face. Jesus, the eternal son in the flesh. I'm the answer to the question I'm raising. In the flesh. His flesh, Jesus' flesh, is the flesh of David. He's David's seed. Our essentials of the triune God and the incarnation of the Son who's one with the Father and the Spirit make sense of what is being said for, the, for, for Jesus in that context, for the followers of Jesus, and they, they knew that, they get that. He's one with the Father. There's no problem with God calling him God. They share one divine nature. And they, they pass on this understanding of who God is, which is why I preach to you that there is one God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. And why I harp that if men preach and they don't say who the God is they're preaching, then they're not preaching in, in, in a Christian context. We have gathered in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father says to the Son, my God. The Son says to the Father, my God, there's one God. Jesus wants to know, inquiring minds want to know, if David calls him Lord, how is he the Son? You still have Acts in front of you, I hope. Keep the book of Acts open. If you've closed it, open it back up. Look at chapter 2 of the book of Acts and draw your, draw your eyes at the text. Chapter 2 in the book of Acts, draw your eyes at verse 29. This is Peter preaching to the crowds in the holy city right after Jesus has ascended. Acts chapter 2, verse 29. See what he says. He says, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and he was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And, and so, verse 30, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him an oath to seat one of the descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, and he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up, to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, which he's poured forth, this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter is preaching Psalm 110. Jesus was using Psalm 110. The New Testament makes this connection, an essential connection, one that Jesus made that he passed on to his disciples, that the disciples picked up and they pass on to us and I'm passing on to you. We're still making the connection. In fact, in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, it powerfully preaches in the book of Hebrews, Psalm 110, and preaches it in connection to Christ. This is the Lord who the Lord says is his Lord. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it gets almost an entire chapter and it dominates verses 11 through 28 of chapter 7 in the book of Hebrews. It almost gets the full chapter. It was an important prophecy. These royal psalms are filled with this imagery of ascension and one being risen up into the heavens. On the outline after Psalm 110, you'll see that I have Psalm 68 verse 18, which has imagery and language of ascent. It pictures Yahweh as a victorious king over all. And this is picked up by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, describing Jesus ascending into the heavens. These connections are being made in our Holy Scripture. There's not time to survey all the connections of all the references, but they're provided for you on the outline so that you can study this, so that I'm doing my part in equipping you so that you understand these things. And more important than understanding is our worship. So that as you hear these things, your hearts begin to stir you go, wow, God is so in control of everything. God is so good. He is so mighty. Wow, this ascension thing, this is so important. It's prophecy. It points us to his sovereignty. When someone tells you beforehand what's going to happen and it unravels just as they said, it, it should cause your knees to shake. You go, whoa, how did you know? You, because God ordained it. The disciples on that mountain were being put in a, in a position to, to trust God. Do you trust me? Jesus is teaching them. Do you trust that this prophecy is unfolding? Do you see this? Are you making these connections on that mountain, on that day? You guys got to see this, Jesus is telling them. We read in the, the account of Matthew, in Matthew 28, as they're going up the mountain, that the disciples were wavering with trust. Doubt was setting in. They, didn't, they weren't doubting the identity of the Lord. They had seen him risen. They had, that, that wasn't the issue. The issue is, what is happening? You know, when Jesus is like, hey, let's go up the mountain, stuff usually happens. And now he's talking about leaving and going up and stuff. What's going on? On the Mount of Transfiguration, recall that it was Peter who wanted to set up some Sukkot tents and keep the party going. Like, this is epic. Elijah and Moses, let's kick it here. Let's do, let's do this. He was missing what was going on. Now turn back to Acts chapter 1. And in Acts chapter 1, we see a similar missing of things that were going on. And we see the patient Lord as he is, is, is about to part from his people. This moves us on the outline from the first point of prophecy to the second point of parting. In Acts chapter 1, we read about the parting. We read about him going up. In verse 8 of Acts chapter 1, what do you see the disciples inquiring about? What's, what's going on there in Acts chapter 1 verse 8? He's talking to them about the Spirit. He's talking to them about the Spirit, but they weren't asking about the Spirit. What were they asking about in Acts chapter 1? They wanted to know, verse 6, is this the time that you are going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Is, is, is it about to go down? It doesn't look like it. He's talking about the Spirit. He's talking about leaving. I mean, you just rose from the dead, man. Like, and we've been kicking it with you for 40 days. And we're on this mountain. What's about to happen? Are you going to restore the kingdom? No, I'm about to leave. 
And you're going, well, but don't you know what we're going through? Don't you know how we're suffering? Your people, the Jewish people in the land, they were suffering. It was a land of conflict. The Roman government was on their backs of oppressing them, stealing from them, taxing them, imposing on them. If you, if you think uh, Gavin Newsom or Garcetti are, are tyrants, you know, you, you got you to gotta study your Bible in the first century and see what Rome was like and see what they were dealing with. It's no wonder that they said, hey, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel, Jesus? What's going on? We see even today it is a land that is still filled with conflict and strife. Right now, there's missiles in the air. There's bodies on the ground. I, I have friends who live there. I'm in constant communication with, watching the news. Are you guys okay? What's going on? There's so much tension in that land, so much tension in the days of Jesus. Of course, they would say, are you going to restore the kingdom? And Jesus said, what? It's not for you to know the times and the epochs that the Father is fixed. It's going to happen. It's fixed. But it's not, it, that's not happening right now. That would have been a really hard pill to swallow. Especially if you, if you were raised in that context. If you had had your stuff stolen and you've been taxed and you've been cheated and you've been thrown in jail and you've been mocked for your faith and you've been ridiculed and you've gone through all that and then you just watched your Lord and you saw the Roman government, what they did with him, how they, they brutally executed him, how the state powers brutally executed him and you just went through all of that. And then you saw your Lord risen from the dead, like, what's up? You'd be like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Jesus, he's risen from the dead. Herod, look out. Caesar, look out. You guys are going to get it. And he's risen from the dead, but his body's different. In fact, when he, when he reappears, you have in the accounts, the disciples kind of don't notice him. There's something different about him. They don't notice him, too, because they weren't expecting him. You know, sometimes when you haven't seen someone in a while, and they look a little different, and you're like, oh, snap, that's you. There's something different about him. You know what's different about him? The power of death was removed from his physical body. He has immortal flesh now. His, 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 he, you don't need a transfiguration anymore. He's, he's transfigured. Death has been completely removed from his body, completely vanquished, completely conquered. He's immortal. He's an immortal man. There's never been anything like this before. So imagine this point in history where, where, where the ascension happens. He's risen from the dead. He has fully shown that he has more power than Rome, Herod, Caesar, any of them could ever imagine. It would be like being in the Avengers Marvel Universe and getting all six of the Infinity Stones. Going, ah, you know, I, I don't want to use them. You go, no, no, man, you got to use them, man. You got them all. You got to use them. Jesus, you got all six infinity stones. Like, let's do this, man. Like, let's throw down Jesus. Go Thanos on Rome. And Jesus is like, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take these stones. And then he floats up into heaven. <laughs> and they're like, what? No, you know, what, what are you? Jesus, you took the stones up to heaven? You're a mortal flesh. You took it up to heaven? Jesus took his authority and power with him into the heavens. But before he did, he commissioned his church and he extended his delegated power and authority to his people so that we would live out what he lived out. And what did he live out? Let me remind you. He lived out a life of suffering. He lived out a life of service. He lived out a life of turning the cheek to his government. 
He, he lived out a life of humility. He lived out a life not of, of taking infinity stones and giving it to the man. He lived a life of kidney stones and feeling the pain of what it was to, to, to love and to be forsaken, of what it was to face darkness and to, to love in the darkness and to offer forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing as they spit on his face, as they mock him, as they literally tear his flesh. He shares good news. There is forgiveness. And then he sends his, his men, he sends those disciples, he sends them, go on mission. Verse 9, look at it again in Acts 1. After he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of the sight. They were gazing intently, verse 10, into the sky, and while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him. Hey, where did these guys come from? They weren't on our camping trip. The description of the clothing here in the Greek text matches the description that we see in Luke 24, verse 4. Luke is the author of Acts and the author of Luke, and so the wording here matches. And in Luke 24, 4, the wording is used in reference to angels. Beyond this textual evidence, both tradition and modern scholarship widely maintain that indeed these, uh, what we have here referred to as two men, are actually two angels. Angels are often described as men in, inside of the Bible, these masculine spiritual creatures they're not biological men, but they appear as men. And so there the ascended Lord goes into heaven. And before his departure, there are angels from heaven who are there to let them know. It shows you Jesus' heart for them. He knows they're hurting, they're confused. I mean, th this is their guy. I mean, they love him, right? And he's leaving them. And, and so he has ordained to have angels there. And those angels say to the confused disciples, the hurting disciples, they say, verse 11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who's been taken up from you, he's been taken from you, I know that hurts. He's been taken from you into heaven. He will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, based, based on Luke's wording here, this is a physical parting. This isn't a metaphor. This isn't an allegory. This certainly isn't a myth. There's not unicorns tramping around and lucky charms and whatever. This, this really happened. Jesus really entered into heaven. Eyewitnesses saw it happen. On the significance of the physicality and the reality of this, theologian Dr. Charles Hodge writes, quote, The ascension was visible. The disciples witnessed the whole transaction. They saw the person of Christ gradually rise from the ground and go up until a cloud hid him from their view. It was a local transfer of his person from one place to another, from earth to heaven. Heaven is therefore a place. In what part of the universe it is located, it's not revealed. But according to the doctrine of scripture, it is a definite portion of space where God specially manifests his presence and where he is surrounded by his angels and the spirits of the just made perfect, end quote. Now from the text of Acts, we see Jesus' entry to heaven from earth. It's described as a physical transportation. Our, our imagination, you know, we can go as high as a drone or whatever. Brian's got really sweet drones. If you're watching the live stream, he's got the drone and it zooms in on the church. So from our imagination, we go up and it's so cool. We're outside talking about this. Did you see the clouds? You just imagine him going up and going, I don't, I don't, I don't see him anymore. Now imagine that from the earth's view, right? Like from the earth's view, they're looking up and you go, Okay, I don't, you know, I don't see him anymore. Like when someone drives off or whatever, you don't see him anymore. From the earth's view, the clouds, I don't see him anymore. Imagine that. Now imagine it on the other side of heaven. Imagine it from the heavenly realm. 
the realm that separates the earth and the heavens. On this end, oh, going up into the clouds, imagine it from the perspective of the angels in heaven. Imagine, imagine the angels, if you will, with their, with their cell phones, right? <laughs> like, he's about to come, he's about to come, get your cell phones, he's about to come, he's about to come. You ever do that, like you have a surprise party or whatever, and you get your phone out, you hit record, and then you're like, dang it, i got to start over, I'm losing memory. You know, and you're just sitting there, you're waiting for it to happen, you're waiting, hey, do it, do it, do it, do it, and then he enters into heaven, the risen and ascended one. Can you imagine the faces of the angels? Can, can you imagine the, just the joy? They're expecting it. It's prophecy. They know what's happening in the earth. I mean, heck, God sent two angels down there. Those poor angels, they didn't get to see it from the other end. They have to sit there with the disciples and go, hey, you guys, he's going to come back or whatever. It's like, dang it, let's hurry up and get back up there. We're missing the party. A party that was really taking place, a party that continues to this day. The one who conquered death left the earth and entered into the heavens. Eyewitnesses confirm it. Keep in mind, these are not eyewitnesses witnessing something happening to a bystander or a stranger. This is their close friend. This is their brother. This is their savior. He literally and figuratively saved their lives. Literally, Jesus saved them from sin. Figuratively, he, he also saved them. I mean, Matthew would have been out collecting taxes. Peter would have been out fishing. Simon would have been out stabbing fools. He'd be in jail by this point. But instead, they're on a mountain with a man who meant everything to them. And now, now he's gone. This is the last time that they would see him. In our lives, we think about the last times when we, when we, we, we see someone that we love. A goodbye that you didn't know was going to be the last goodbye. You know what I'm talking about? I think about my friend Kurt, who was literally killed on camera last year. And I did not know that the last time that I saw him would be the last time that I saw him. Alive, of course. I now, unfortunately, have my last memory of my friend Kurt, of his open casket at the Inglewood Mortuary. And then his closed casket at the Inglewood Cemetery as that box was rolled into the wall. Those are my last memories. I think of people in our church who have died. And on this note, brothers and sisters, let me encourage you today, let me remind you today that at the end of this service, you will say goodbye to people. And there could be people who are here today and this will be our last Sunday with them. Tomorrow is not promised. That's the thing about saying goodbye. That's what makes it so hard. This is why we need to hear Christ when we gather. This is the scandal of preaching that doesn't bring up Christ. This is the scandal of not talking about sin and death that we deserve and not talking about the one who has conquered that death. The grave could not keep him. And because the grave could not keep him, he had to go. He left the land of the dying and, and, and took to heaven, listen, he took to heaven the first piece of the new creation that is to come in his flesh. Like the new earth that is going to come, Jesus is the first piece of the new earth. And like the new earth, Jesus is glorified. This glorified earthly matter, the flesh that was subjected to death in Adam, has been reversed for the first time and now it has entered into heaven. In the days of old, God brought Enoch, Genesis 5, 24. God brought Elisha to, to heaven. But they were mortal flesh who await resurrection. This is resurrected matter. 
This is glorified human flesh. And understand that in that flesh you have the genetic DNA of our father Adam and you have the genetic DNA of the father of the promised people Abraham and you have the genetic DNA of the great King David, Adam, Abram, David. That flesh, that flesh, that DNA, there's a piece of DNA in heaven. He took it, resurrected and glorified. Along with that flesh, there's a human soul in heaven united to that flesh. The souls of the dead in Christ, the, the, the souls of the dead in God are in heaven, but not one in a resurrected, glorified body. As Zacharias Eurcinius wrote in the 1800s, the ascension of Christ into heaven is a visible, local, real translation of his human body and soul from the earth into heaven, which is above all visible of the heavens, in the light which is inaccessible, where he is now and remains, and from which he will come to judgment. So we know what's coming next, judgment. But what about what's happening now? We move from prophecy, first point, to parting, second point, to third point, the present. What's the significance of the ascension to us in the present? Let me draw your eyes back to the text of Acts chapter 1. Recall what Jesus told them. He spoke of the Spirit. I'm going to say more about Him, the Spirit, in the, in the outline as we're going with some subpoints. But right now I just want to emphasize Christ's work in the present by the Spirit. The ascension was not a vacation. Jesus didn't go on a furlough. Jesus isn't taking a break. Jesus isn't pulling a COVID stunt because he doesn't want to go back to work because he likes zooming in his jammies. No, he hasn't stopped working. His earthly ministry continues, albeit from a different headquarters. And though not physically present in the earth, Jesus himself said that it was better for him to go because he would send the spirit who would make him present, not just among the 12 in Jerusalem, but among the church universal around the world. Look at verse 12. We see that in verse 12 of, of Acts that they return to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. They, they go to Jerusalem, a Sabbath journey away. Verse 13, they enter into the city. They go to the upper room. Verse 13 tells you who's there, Peter, John, James, Andrew, etc. Verse 14, they were all with one mind, continuing to devote themselves to prayer. The women are there, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The family is there. The disciples are there. And what are they doing? What's going on? Though Jesus is ascended, Jesus is still working in the hearts of his people. He's drawing them together to do what? To worship. He's drawing them together for what? For anticipation, for expectation of the mission that is ahead. For the work that he was going to do through them as he sent them out. But first, he begins in their hearts. It always begins in the heart. You're going to start a little fire in there and that fire is going to spread. It'll be a wildfire. And that's what the book of Acts records. In the book of Acts, we see that wildfire that begins in their hearts in worship right here. It just spreads out into the earth. Jesus is not, not taking a break. He's not missing in action whatsoever. In Acts chapter 7, we see Jesus showing himself to Stephen, for example who sees him in heaven. See, Stephen sees him in heaven. He sees him in heaven specifically at the right hand as he's about to die, vindicating his death before the unjust and the corrupt powers of the day. Acts chapter 7, verse 55. Write it down. You can read it. In Acts chapter 7, we see Jesus still. He's not missing an action. In Acts chapter 9, we see Jesus comes to Paul in a miraculous Christophanic encounter. Acts 9, 5. And, 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 and we see, what, what does he say? What does he say to Paul at that time known as Shaul, Saul? He says, why are you persecuting me? Paul wasn't persecuting Jesus. Jesus is in heaven. He's not doing anything to Jesus. 
Oh, he's persecuting his people. And Jesus takes that personally. You mess with them, you mess with me. That's a, that's a sobering wake-up call for, for, for people who attack the church. You're messing with them, you're, you're messing with me, Jesus says. As I said, he's not missing in action at all. He's defending his church, we see in Acts 9, in his encounter with Shaul. He's not missing. Oh, no, he's, he's, he's going Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible. This is real life. That said, in real life, we know Tom Cruise isn't Ethan Hunt. You remember that time when he got squirted with water from that fake microphone and he started freaking out on the red carpet and making a fool out of himself? If you haven't seen it, just Google it after church. It's kind of funny. He gets all whiny. You're like, dude, you are definitely not Ethan Hunt. Jesus is Ethan Hunt. And more, doing Mission Impossible with his church from his office in the heavens, in the earth. So while one might say Jesus has left the building, he is still very much on the move by the Spirit through his people. Now that brings us to the next point on the outline. We have prophecy, parting. We have the present, what he's up to. He's, he's still on the move, as I'm saying. Now let's talk about what he's up to in the present. The next point on the outline is the purposes. And I'm going to give you some subpoints as we talk about what, what is Jesus up to now. Now, we already saw in Acts 1, the overarching purpose of his ascension is tied to mission. The disciples wanted to know, hey, are you going to, like, defend Israel? Can you go Thanos on Herod and Caesar and stuff like that? He was like, no, going to do that later. Right now, we have a mission. And critical to the mission, relative to what happens via the ascension, is really important to understand. And for purposes of understanding this, I want to take you from the book of Acts into the book of Ephesians. So, so if you would, turn from the book of Acts and find your way into the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is a letter that's written by Shaul, Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, who Jesus, you know, punked in Acts 9 and actually turns him into an apostle. He, he, he writes this letter to saints who are in Ephesus. Paul had a handful of uh, mission trips to Ephesus. He even lived in Ephesus for a few years, so he knows the area very well. He knows the people really well. He knows that they're dealing with real-life issues that were facing the church. And he knows that Jesus doesn't play when it comes to people doing goofball stuff to his church. Uh, particularly, the Apostle Paul was worried about divisive people in the church, troublemakers. He was worried about the purity of the church. And so as you read Ephesians, you see him addressing division, addressing troublemakers, calling people not to knock it off, but calling people to see Jesus. The answer to sin is to behold Jesus. The answer to those problems is to behold Jesus. Again, the scandal of those who preach anything other than Jesus. Paul writes Ephesians and he says, Hey, saints in Ephesus, ascended Jesus. Let me talk to you about him. And as he does, we'll, we'll see some things surface as well as I cross-reference. we got to move fast with some other sections inside of the Bible. And if you have your outlines, you'll see that I've listed out seven. And we're going to move fast. Parakletos, predestined, praise, place, potentate, priesthood, and power. Keeping the P alliteration going. Boom. Let's start. Parakletos. Parakletos is a Greek word. It's used in the New Testament. Jesus' disciple, John, uses it when he's talking about Jesus, talking about ascension. So it's, it's important to understand this term. According to John, Jesus, while he was talking about ascending into heaven, while he was talking, while he was talking about ascending into heaven, he started talking about the Spirit. And he refers to the Holy Spirit. There's one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. He refers to the Holy Spirit as parakletos. He uses that Greek term. Uh, four times, John recounts the Spirit as parakletos. John 14, 16, John 14, 26, John 15, 26, John 16, 7. 
It's a significant term, parakletos, in that culture, which is why I'm using the Greek term so that you understand it. You see, parakletos was a word that was used for legal representation, right? It was a, it was a term for legal representation. Uh, Larry Parker got me 2.1 million, parakletos. He's a, a lawyer who represents you. Someone who goes to the court on behalf of another person, that's a parakletos. And, and so as Jesus talks about the spirit coming, it's very interesting that he calls the spirit parakletos. Because what he is saying is the spirit, what is a parakletos again? It's someone who's representing another. The spirit is going to come and represent me. Listen to this, John 16, 7. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go for if I do not go away, the parakletos will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So, so Jesus, is, as we're talking about, like, why is the ascension? What's happening with the ascension? How is that important today? Jesus talks about the role of the Spirit coming to represent him to us for purposes of gospel proclamation. And that's exactly what the Spirit does. We saw in Acts 1. As Jesus was ascending, what was he talking about in Acts 1? They're, they're like, hey, Thanos, get the kingdom. Let's do this. He says, no, you've got to wait for the Spirit to come. That's Acts 1. Acts 2, the Spirit comes, the day of Pentecost. And the mission goes out according to plan, and that wildfire begins to spread. And as it's, as it's spreading, as it's going out, we, we, we see everything's going according to plan. So we move from this subpoint of parakletos to the next subpoint of predestined. And let me draw your eyes to the text of Ephesians 1. Look at verse 20 in Ephesians 1. Which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. That's ascension. Before verse 20, we see Paul talking a lot about predestination and, and God working out a plan of salvation that he's predestined. And we're told by Paul that it's before the foundations of the world. And it centers on the cross. It celebrates the resurrection. It culminates in ascension. It continues in the church. Look at verse 4 of Ephesians 1. Just as he chose us before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. The purpose of ascension was a part of God's will, his sovereign decree, our salvation. Fallen men deserve death. Fallen men face judgment. We have bodies and they rot in the ground. Behold the man who's reversed the curse, the one who took the judgment and died, but he beat the grave and, he, and, he, and he's risen from the dead and he took that resurrected body into the heavens. He is now, verse 20 it says, in the heavenly places. And by the parakletos, he is working out the predestined plan of God. Speaking of the Spirit, the first point, we've moved on to the second point, predestined. But let's go back to the first point and see Paul talk about that point in verse 13. Paul speaks of salvation as the work of the Spirit. Verse 13, what do we read? In him, you also, listening to the message of the gospel of your salvation, what's happened to you? You believed and you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. See the purposes of God, the predestined plan of God through the parakletos who represents the son to us. Jesus wasn't making it up as he went. He was like, man, what's going on? I'm getting arrested. What should I do next? Uh, I think I'll let him kill me. And then I think I'll raise up. Maybe I'll stay dead for a week. Nah, three days sounds good. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to do three days. And then he comes back to life and he's like, all right, I'm risen. What am I going to do next? I think I'll spend a week in Jerusalem. No, I think I'll spend two weeks. 
No, you know what? I'll make it 40. That's a good biblical number. I'll stay for 40. He's not making it up as he's going. This is the predestined plan of God. He's not on that mountain going, I'm going to float up in heaven. That's what I'm going to do next. No, this is the predestined plan of God. What's the point of this ascension stuff? Parakletos, spirit. Predestined plan of God, sovereignty. Third sub-point now, move to praise. The point of ascension is praise. Look at Ephesians 1.6 in front of us. We read in 1.6, To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. In the book of Revelation, we see Jesus in heaven receiving worship from the creatures of our God and King. They lift up their voice and sing, Worthy are you, to quote Revelation 4.11, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and they were created. That party that I was talking about, as the angels received him, as the Father received him in the heavens. Worthy is the Lamb, Revelation 5.10, that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The purpose of ascension is for the praise of the heavens down into the earth. The parakletos represents the sun calling the earth to join with the heavens in that proclamation. When we were singing today, we're joining with the heavens in singing. As I'm exalting his name right now, we're joining with the angels in heaven who exalt him in the realm, in the heavenly realm, where the Father and the Spirit eternally dwell. He is one with them, receiving praise and honor in his human body. Ephesians 1.20 describes Jesus at the right hand of the Father. In that culture, the right hand is the position of honor. It's the position of authority. This is my right hand. That's the position of authority and power. We saw Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord at his right hand, Lord, Lord, Lord. Hebrews 1.3, we read of the Son seated at the, the, the right hand of the Father. The author says, the author actually asks, who has the Father ever spoken to this way? No one. Hebrews 1, 3. Who's, who's he ever spoken to this way? In verse 4, the father says, you are my son, quoting Psalm 2, 7. In verse 8, the father says to the son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. He's got the infinity stones. He has a scepter. And he's up there next to the father. And the father calls his son God. There's only one God. He eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit. This is the way the scriptures reveal him, the one God who is, the God we proclaim, the Father who calls his Son God. Our Trinitarian faith is evident in the Holy Scripture, and it's evident in the sounds of heaven as angels and dead saints in Christ cry out to him, you are God, your scepter, your glory. Why ascension? It's for his praise. And he sends Parakletos to call us in that praise. And he's predestined that we would join in that praise. And he goes in the ascension, next point, Parakletos, predestined, praise, next point, place. John 14, Jesus says, I, I'm, I have to ascend, not just because I'm sending the Parakletos, I have to ascend because I go to prepare a place for you. A place for the dead in Christ to await his return. Earlier, I, I stressed the physical body of our Lord entering into the heavens. This stands to reason that heaven is a place. 
In the words of theologian Dr. Charles Hodge, I quote, Heaven is a city of which we are the citizens, in which is our citizenship. It means the place where God dwells, where the angels and the spirits of the just are congregated, where Christ came and to which he has returned. He told his disciples and he went to prepare them a place in this sense of the word. When it's used in the Bible, it speaks of our God as Father in heaven, heaven as his throne, his temple, his dwelling place. If Christ has a true body, it must occupy Dr. Hodge reasons, a definite portion of space. And where Christ is, this is the Christian's heaven. Now, I highlight this place. I highlight the purpose of ascension for preparing a place because we live in a culture of new age ideology. We live in a culture of skepticism. And we hear things like, well, heaven is a, a metaphor. Heaven is a state of mind. You hear that a lot. Like, yeah, no, 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 it's a place. It has an address. It's got like Google coordinates or the equivalent of Google coordinates in the other realm. Peter speaks of heaven as the place that Christ has, 1 Peter 3, 18, gone into. The Apostle Paul speaks, in fact, of an encounter, possibly him visiting heaven. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Scholars note that Paul describes there how he was caught up to the third heaven and two verses later, he adds that he was caught up into paradise. It's a place. In John 18, verse 36, Jesus spoke of his kingdom being from a different realm. And so we don't need to think of heaven. We are talking about looking up in clouds, but it's not that heaven is up per se. He might have gotten past the clouds and went right for all we know or jumped back down somewhere else. It's a different realm. So it's not up there. It's out there. It's another reality. And from that other reality, He's receiving praise there right now. People are worshiping him. I think, of, I, I think of folks that we've lost in this church. And it's Sunday and we're worshiping and they're worshiping and we're joining with the heavenly chorus. They're worshiping. It's for his praise. And that place is also not just a, a worship center, but it's a gathering place. It will be our home. It will be our home. And there we will meet our Savior, which leads us to the next point. Who is our Savior? He is the potentate. A potentate is a ruler, a monarch. It's one who wields power. In the New Testament, Jesus' ascension is described with great power. He's described as being in the heavens with power. Theologian J.I. Packer explains that the ascension is Christ's personal ascendancy. Jesus went to the place of power, pictured as a throne at the Father's right hand, to sit on the throne, a grand visor in a Persian court, as they used to do, is to occupy the position of executive ruler over the monarch. He's in a place of power. you got Ephesians in front of you. Look back at the text of Ephesians. Draw your eyes at verse 20. Brought him, Christ, raised him from the dead, heavenly places, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one that is to come. And he put all things in subjection to his feet and gave him the head over all things to the church. He's in, he's in power. Things are subjected to his feet. Listen, listen. The ascension is not about elevation. It's about exaltation. The one who was murdered on the cross at the hands of a fake king is the king of creation. He's the potentate. He's the monarch. He's now graciously withholding his wrath in, in, in order to cry out to the creation... Come to me and be forgiven. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, begrudgingly and joyfully. The demons of hell will bow. The tyrants, the traffickers, they will face judgment. 
as well. The good people, the spiritual people, they will face judgment. The sight of the man at the right hand in heaven viewed rightly the potentate, it should cause us to tremble. There's fear with that kind of power. He's got the infinity stones. Do you know what he's going to do with them when he comes? But instead of using them, next point on your outline, from the heavens, he serves as priest over his people. We move now to priesthood. According to Hebrews chapter 4, 6, and 7, Jesus is in the, in the heavens as a high priest, interceding, uh, intermediating for God's elect. You know, earlier we explored the word parakletos as representing another uh, with regard to the spirit. The word parakletos is also used in reference to Jesus. In, in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, we read that Jesus is parakletos from the heavens. He is representing us, in this case, in the heavenly court before the Father. You're, you're sinners, and I'm going to represent you in the heavenly court. The, 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 the infinity stones won't be wielded against you. My priesthood will. In the words of theologian John Calvin, I quote, The Son beckons the attention of the Father to himself to keep his gaze away from our sins. You see the mercy and the grace and the love of our priest as he stands in heaven intermediating for us. There is one mediator between God and man, the apostle would write. It is the man Christ Jesus. And because he is man, he can represent us in court. Because he is God, he has the power to forgive and to pardon. Because he is the sacrifice and he's the priest, the transaction won't be lost. It's all in him. We're secure. That security, that power leads to the next point on the outline, and it's just that power. There's a power that comes from knowing that the potentate is a, is a priest, and he loves us, and he's representing us as our parakletos, and he has sent the Spirit to be a parakletos to represent himself among us. Look back at Ephesians chapter 1. See what the apostle prays in chapter 1, verse 18. Look at the text. I pray, verse 18, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of the calling and the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints, the surpassing greatness of the power towards us who believe. And these are in accordance with the working of his strength, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and ascended him into heaven. That power, the power of the ascension, the power of the resurrection, that power he's transferring to his church. Verse 23, his body, the fullness of all him dwelling among us. Jesus is filling the church with power. Salvation comes by his power. Church, church attendance didn't drop in 2020 because of COVID. The church won't die in 2021 and 2022 because we have a power from the heavens to the earth that fuels us on mission. Invite your friends to come to church and watch what God does. More importantly, invite them to come to God and be rescued from his holy wrath by the sacrifice of the son who is both sacrifice and priest. Invite them to be forgiven. Invite them to know the power of salvation. And share with them the voice of the priest who calls them to come. Share with them that the Messiah is going to return. Share with them these good things that we call the good news. Share with them that not only is he the priest, but he has delegated his authority to you to be a priest to represent him to them. In other words, I haven't come here today on my own strength to tell you listening to come to him. 
My words are his words. I have come with his word to invite you. Come, be forgiven. Know his love. He loves you. He died for you. He will cleanse you. He will rescue you. He will pardon you. I'm, I'm representing him as his priest. And, and if you're raised in a Catholic tradition or whatever, that word has a totally different meaning. But in the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we read, You, the church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. He called me out. He rescued me. Talk to anyone who, who, who knew me back then and what he saved me from. He called me out of the darkness into the light so that I would stand today as one of his priests and you with me to cry out, there's a priest in heaven who will set you free. And to call on the church to be reminded of the darkness that we've been called out of and to remind the church of this power. You got Ephesians 1 in front of you. Quickly, quickly, go to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. One body, one spirit, one hope, your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Look at verse 8 of chapter 4. He ascended, doctrine of ascension. What is he doing in the ascension? Rescuing the captives, rescuing prisoners. That's you and I. What is he doing in the ascension according to Ephesians 4 verse 8? He's pouring down on the earth gifts to men. What, is, what are those gifts? Verse 11, apostles and prophets and evangelists. Pastors and teachers. What's the point of it, Ephesians 4.12? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we attain a unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Why did he go? Because he's pouring his power out on us from heaven to the earth to display the reality of his work. The spirit representing him, he, a parakletos, representing us, he, the priest, passing priesthood to us, that we would be in the earth calling out into the darkness, come and be set free. Paul reminds the readers of all that is true in the ascension, and that's what I have come today to do, to talk to you about ascension, for you to see its power. There are many distractions, many topics that Paul could have spoken of, many things going on in Ephesus, many scandals, corrupt government, lots of things he could have talked about, but he talks about Jesus. And it's worth noting that Paul wrote this letter from jail. You've got Ephesians 4 in front of you, verse 1, I, a prisoner of the Lord, I implore you to rebel against Rome. No, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called. I implore you to go. No, no. I implore you to see Jesus and share Jesus. This is a prison letter. If anyone had reason to complain about the government, if anyone had, had a reason to sort of get distracted by the media or the so-called news and complain and cry and whatever, it would be Paul. And what does Paul do? He lifts up Christ because that's where the power is. The power comes from the one who left the earth and went to the heavens. It comes from the one who descended into the earth, Ephesians 4, who took on flesh. It comes from the one who conquered death in his flesh. This Jesus, he's been taken up to you. He's been taken up from you from heaven, the angel said. He will come in the same way you've watched him go. That leads to the final point. We've had a bunch of subpoints about the purposes and what's going on now because he has ascended. The main points are prophecy, parting, 
his present purposes, and the last point, and we're going to step into a time of communion, is parousia, another Greek word. And I use the Greek word because it's, it's an important Greek word. The parousia was used by the followers of Jesus to describe his return. Jesus taught his disciples that when he came back, he's going he's to break out the infinity stones. And when he comes back, he's going to pour out wrath on evil. You know, people say, how can there be a good God when there's all this evil in the world? That excuse for not following God now, it's going to be dealt with. It's a matter of time. He will punish wickedness. He will restore his kingdom to Israel. He will rescue his church from wrath. He will raise the dead. He will rule in the earth. He will return. He will come back. Those size eights, uh, you know, whatever size his foot was, is still the same size. Those little toes are going to touch back on the Mount of Olives. He's going to walk back into the land, and he's going to overthrow all the governments of the earth, and they will all bow down before him. Parousia. Parousia was a political term that was used at the time in Greco-Roman contexts when, when, when a monarch would, would come to a city, and the city would empty out for the monarch, and the monarch would have his way with the place. We talk about parousia because that's what's going to happen. Further, parousia is a word that means presence. He's going to physically be present. This isn't a metaphor. He's not going to send a third party. He's going to come and do it himself. That's scary. It's scary. And I'm thankful that right now my king is my priest. I'm thankful right now that he is ascended. I read his words. He says, it's better that I go and I do this. Because that means that right now we're in an age of patience. He's ordained for us to be in this age of patience. Look, look, look at the news. Look at the craziness in our news. Look at the greed, the racism, the division, the confusion, the corruption, the politicians. Look at our insecure economy. Lumber is scarce. Prices have increased by 400% in the last 12 months. The lack of concrete has put contractors out of business and stopped building projects dead in their tracks. Electronic companies, appliances aren't being built. Computer chips are so hard to come by that car manufacturers are, are partially building cars and storing them in monstrous parking lots just waiting, causing skyrocketing of car prices, not to mention gas prices and gas shortages. Talk of cyber attacks on a major gas pipeline. What is going on? Inflation, supply chain, food shortages, uh, wars among the nations. What's going on in, 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 in Israel? Pandemic and pain and injustice. It's the left. It's they're doing it. It's the right. They're doing it. Oh, the devil loves that. And you guys keep fighting and you keep missing what's actually going on. Let me tell you what's actually going on. There's a priest in heaven who's being patient. There's a serpent in the earth who's busy distracting folks. There's a priest in heaven who's being patient. And God is in full control of all of this. He has us outside today. And we come to the cup that he gave us. And with the Apostle Paul who passed this on, he said, with this cup, do you know what you're doing? You're proclaiming his death until what? Until he returns. He can only return if he left. And today we have studied his departure. He was taken up in glory. Open the top. What was taken up? His body. The soul and the body of a man taken to the heavens. Let's remember him.
pull back the cup, the drink, what was taken up? Blood. The blood of the sacrifice back in the body, now in the heavens. The first blood of the new creation rendered immortal. He is the forerunner, Hebrews tells us, when he talks about his priesthood. What does a forerunner do? A forerunner goes before. So what has happened to him will happen to us. Our doctrine of rapture is, is pictured in his ascension. What, what he did in ascension will come to his church. We're going to be rescued from whatever comes because he rescued us on the cross. And to all who are here today, this cup never runs out. This cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy. Come and drink. More importantly, come and receive him, not by the drinking of a cup that is a symbol, but by your heart crying out to him, Father, forgive me. Father, forgive me. I receive your son. Let's drink and celebrate the one who has come. He was taken up in glory. He will return in glory. Let us offer our feeble and humble songs as we close the service. And being reminded that we join with the angels, we join with the saints in Christ what we have come here today to do is the most important thing you could have done this morning, to be with the church and to sing praises to the one who has come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you, uh, Lord, for your word. We thank you that you've blessed us with a church that doesn't shy away from it. And you've, you've, you've blessed us with a congregation. So many brothers and sisters here who have a heart of unity and a spirit of worship and a craving for truth and a heart to see the lost come to you. Lord, stir in our hearts a thankfulness for the work of your spirit. Stir in our hearts a readiness for the work of mission. Stir in our hearts now a spirit of praise so that as our brother and your servant Landon leads us in song, Lord, we wouldn't be just going through the motions but Lord, we would, we would truly be flowing from the power that you've poured out, the grace that you have poured out. Receive these songs of worship, we pray. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.